I think that our biggest failing as a profession is in considering substance use disorder as an individualized phenomenon that is sort of hermetically sealed from individual to individual, that it's due to some innate structural problem in their brain or due to some moral failing on their part, and that by giving them just the right medication or by punishing them just enough that they're going to get better. So I think a lot of these individual clinicians, frontline staff, they see addiction, they see the severe consequences of addiction, often affecting health, and they see that it's an addiction to a substance that they have some control over in the hospital setting. So they make the mistaken assumption that by providing that same chemical or pharmaceutical in a controlled way, that they're somehow perpetuating the addiction. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hi, this is Christopher Morath reporting for Narcotica. Before we begin today, tragedy hit the Narcotica family on November 8th when our friend and co-host, Troy Farah, announced that his father, Paul Farah, had fatally succumbed to COVID-19. Paul was only 55 when he passed, and we ask our listeners to send positive energy to Troy and his family at this difficult time. Troy, buddy, my thoughts are with you. If you haven't already, please get vaccinated, folks. And now, on with the show. Over the past decade, as fatal drug overdoses have risen precipitously, few professions have been hit harder by the crisis than the medical community. Doctors, in particular, have found themselves in the no-win position of being both blamed for the overdose crisis, which claimed nearly 100,000 American lives last year, and being tasked with containing it. According to one dominant narrative, it was cavalier doctors who sparked the crisis in the first place by overprescribing habit-forming narcotic painkillers to millions of Americans after being softened up at lavish dinners and then duped by nefarious pharmaceutical reps using fudged data. But that's overly simplistic. For starters, it ignores the fact that the greatest spike in drug deaths came when doctors reined in opioid prescribing after authorities started targeting so-called pill mills. This left tens of thousands of pain patients stranded and paved the way for the introduction of illicitly made fentanyl into the U.S. to fill unmet demand. While there's no doubt that there were some unscrupulous doctors that cashed in on prescribing mood-altering substances, there always have been, the subsequent war on doctors has eroded patient trust in the medical profession and created a thriving black market for powerful synthetic imitations of drugs that were once routinely prescribed. This has had ripple effects into the anti-vax movement. People who don't trust their doctors or see the medical community as greedy are less likely to take precautions against COVID-19, for instance. If that's not bad enough, doctors are facing increasing pressure to identify and contain substance abuse by their patients or else face consequences. Family doctors across the U.S. have been branded criminals or have lost their licenses for the act of tending to their patients. The good news is the overdose crisis inspired a growing number of progressive-thinking doctors to enter the addiction medicine field. These are physicians who employ the principles of harm reduction in their practices and aren't afraid to use unconventional methods if they help save lives. On the show, 
are two of them today. Gentlemen, why don't you introduce yourselves? Well, I'm uh, Ben Cochiaro. I'm a family physician, a researcher, and an HIV specialist. Um, I work for a large harm reduction organization here in Philadelphia, and I'm also an assistant professor of family and community medicine at uh, Drexel University and Penn State Hershey College of Medicine. Good to be here. And hey, Chris, my name is Ashish Takrar. I'm a doctor. Uh, I'm an internal medicine doctor, primary care doctor, and an addiction medicine specialist. I work at uh, the VA at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I am also a fellow there, uh, research and policy, and um, part of the National Clinician Scholars Program there. And I also occasionally work as a staff physician at Johns Hopkins Bayview in Baltimore. Thank you for being on. And absent today, as I mentioned, are both Troy Farah and my co-host, Zachary Siegel. We'll hope to have them on next time. Uh, ben, we've known each other uh, for for a few years now. Um, I think around the the fir- one of the first times we we spent time in the field together um, was in probably 2018 when the encampments were uh, under the bridges there in Kensington during the winter. And um, you know, I often tell the story to people about uh, what true harm reduction field work looks like. I don't think it got got more real than than it did one day when. We encountered a man going uh, into insulin shock or, or diabetic shock, I believe, of some sort. Uh, that's what you diagnosed it as at the time, and and he wouldn't he wouldn't move until he was you know until he got well until he, he was he was um get, you know provided with a bag to to get him to the hospital and and um well he got that bag and I and I just recall you tenderly um, caretaking him um, until the ambulance arrived and he was covered in his own feces and um. I guess I would just ask you, what brings a doctor like you out of the um, the office and into the field to, to work, do work like that? I mean, the, the long and the short of it is that I'm a family doc, and um, part of family medicine is practicing community medicine, which means understanding what's going on in your community and knowing how to take care of that. Um, I live pretty much at Lehigh and Emerald, about two blocks away from where that encampment was. So part of my job is to understand the problems that my neighbors face and understand how to best counsel them as they move through their lives and, and try to understand what's going on with their bodies and to make choices about those bodies. So um, another way to consider it is, you know, for a very long time, I, I worked under um, Johanna Berrigan and Mary Beth Appel, who run the Catholic Worker Clinic um, on Haggard Street in Kensington, about four blocks from where I'm currently uh, speaking to you from. And, you know, I'm not much of a practicing Catholic myself, but the the Catholic worker movement was really formative in my understanding of how to do medicine. Um, They practiced something called Christian personalism, where, you know, if we understand ourselves as all created in God's image, everything that we do to each other is then either an act of worship or an act of sacrilege. And, you know, by, by seeing the divine in our patients and by being open to that kind of witnessing, we can form a, a better relationship with our patients than if we consider ourselves to be the gods, you know, casting down prescriptions from on high and just expecting them to follow blindly. So, yeah, that's what brought me to Emerald City. That's what, that's what got me doing what I do is, is an understanding of my job both as 
somebody who's supposed to be able to care for the problems in their community, as well as somebody who is supposed to really understand the divine in the patient and to and to respect that in a way that upholds their autonomy while at the same time allowing them to better understand what's going on with their body. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, that was a tricky day because the, the man had to go, but didn't want to go. And, and you, you through that process you just described, you know, convinced him to, to go. Um, and we'll never know what really happened to him. Things have gotten pretty, they've gone from bad to worse and we can get into policy later, but um, she, she, you practiced in Baltimore, um, at John Hopkins, and you told me at one point that a high proportion of uh, patients admitted for all sorts of issues, from you know a, a hip replacement to pneumonia or whatever, uh, have opioid use disorders, um, and that you frequently um, transitioned them onto some sort of medication-assisted treatment. But what is the dialogue like between the doctor and the patient on that? I mean, are patients pretty forthcoming about their drug use when they come in for something that's not drug related, let's say, and how do you get them to trust you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, no, they're not forthcoming and often for very good reason. Um, the level of stigma that patients with drug use face um, when they enter medical systems is unfortunately really, really high. Um, it's, I think, shocking to people who haven't encountered it or seen it firsthand, but um, most of these patients know what to expect. And a lot of their times, I hate to say it, I think they're right to expect, um, they're, they're correct in their assumption that they're going to face stigma um, for acknowledging um, their drug use and talking about it openly. So um, it, it's really sad to see, you know, you walk around the hospital and just patient after patient who could be getting better care if there was um if there was just a better relationship between the hospital and medical establishment and patients with history of drug use and addiction. So, you know, how do we try to close that gap? How do we build that relationship? Um, it's individual by individual. Um, you know, maybe at some point we could talk about the conversations that I have with the other clinicians, nurses, pharmacists, but um, in terms of the conversation with the patients, it really all starts with, trying to understand where they're coming from, what their priorities are, and prioritizing what matters to them, not what I think should matter to them, because it's really about them. Um, they came for a reason, probably after like many, many days, if not weeks, of deciding whether or not to come and face what's going to be a really rough hospitalization. So um, it really just comes down to asking them and listening to uh, what matters to them. So is there, there's, there's some confusion around the protocols for, for patients when they come into like an ER doctor here recently reached out and was under the impression that he couldn't um, stabilize somebody on methadone after above a certain dose, et cetera. Um, what type of protocol would you use? And, and, you know, what was your end goal to, to, to treat the underlying condition that they were there for, or to treat their addiction or both? At the end of the day, I wanted to offer both of those to every single patient. If someone comes to the hospital and is seeking care for something not related to their addiction, I want to offer that care and prioritize it. I want to let them know that we will be able to help support the transition to methadone, buprenorphine, 
long neck naltrexone if that is in line with what their goals are. Um, but it, it's a really tricky thing, Chris, because it, it, we're trying to do two things at once. At, on one side, we're trying to increase access to treatment, right? There's still too many settings in which individuals can't access treatment. On the other side of it, though, I also don't want to force anyone into treatment. That's, that's not what our job is. I want to offer it, help promote it. And if there's any ambivalence about it, maybe harness that and try to, you know, gently suggest that, that, you know, it might be better, but mm-hmm. we, there's kind of two things that are trying to hold at the same time, um, trying to offer it to everyone, but um, not forcing it. So to get into some of the nuts and bolts, right? You said there's a ton of confusion out there and there is, I see this every day I'm working in the hospital. What can or can't you do? Um, I'll kind of just outline it to make it as simple as I can, just for any of the listeners who are interested. Um, there's a distinction in the law between prescribing, dispensing, and administering these medications. So since the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914, subsequent Supreme Court legislation, and then the Controlled Substances Act, that's all kind of the background for the law, along with the um, the, uh, the Code of Federal Regulations. So that's what kind of set up the law. So what can and can't you do? If someone is in the hospital or in the ED, you can administer them any of these medications. You can administer buprenorphine. You can administer methadone. Um, there's no regulation of the dose you can administer. And you can administer other full agonist opioids, dilaudid, oxycodone, fentanyl, et cetera. Um, so that's administering. It's literally you know, putting the tab giving the tab, watch them take it, or giving them the IV push, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can, you're limited in what you can prescribe, though. And so if you're in the hospital, and you want to say, hey, I want to send a prescription of methadone to the pharmacy, that is illegal to do. Um, so you cannot prescribe it. Um, I can give it to you to drink right in front of me when you're there. Um, the kind of in-between zone is the dispensing, and that's what opioid treatment programs do for methadone. You know, you mm. don't, sometimes you have to drink it at the window. Other times you dispense that take-home dose for them to take home. Right. And there is a right. distinction between methadone prescribed for pain versus methadone prescribed for maintenance, which I always thought was just maddeningly, like, stupid, you know, and that that we can, you know, I mean, there, there were doctors in the past that would write, you know, pain because they were trying to help somebody out, you know, but that's it, the war on doctors has really just shut down people like that. Like so many doctors are so afraid to prescribe just about anything, you know? Um, and so, actually, yeah, if I could also pick up on that, because I, I do yeah. want to also get back to what you were saying about what, what we would actually do if someone comes to the hospital. Could we talk about that for a little bit? Would that be course, helpful? Sure. Yeah. So if someone's there, my number one main priority is to, like I said, really respond to what their what their goals are, but I want to make sure they don't go into withdrawal and start feeling ill. Um, that is often the number one fear for a lot of people who are coming in with dependence. And there are kind of three different ways we could do that if it happens to be opioid use disorder. Um, it, we can offer to start methadone. You could offer to start buprenorphine. Um, although you know you have to be careful with how you start buprenorphine. Um, and then if people are not sure about that or don't want to, then as the addiction doctor, I do feel comfortable saying, let's stabilize you on a full agonist opioid. Let's give you a high dose of oxycodone, hydromorphone, I don't know by the brand name, Dilaudid. Um, let's give you something to stabilize you so you can actually get care for the other conditions that, um, that you're here to get treated. 
would you say that's uh and ben feel free to jump in um is that is that common in your experience um has is, is that um the type of thing most doctors would do or is well and that's yeah that's the funny part is that this what what ashish just described has been the guideline for physicians going back half a century i'm going to read to you directly from the American Medical Association Council on Mental Health statement from 1971 on uh, narcotics and medical practice. So they write here under the heading of treatment of morphine type dependence by withdrawal methods that there has never been any legal or medical question of the right and duty of a physician to administer limited quantities of the drug on which the patient is dependent or one of a like nature to relieve acute withdrawal symptoms. And then they continue later down, abrupt, complete withdrawal or cold turkey as routine treatment is inhumane, unnecessary, and distinctly contraindicated. Mm. This is the American Medical Association writing in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1971, defining our duties to the patient as physicians. And yet, as Ashish will probably back me up on this, that is not what happens in the hospital. In fact, there is a distinct pipeline for people who use drugs to get sometimes gently, sometimes not so gently elbowed into signing, uh, signing out against medical advice. I put that in air quotes because the medical advice is for people to stay and receive treatment. But if part of that treatment involves intentionally withdrawing a person from a substance on which they've become dependent to the point where they go through really a, a terrible withdrawal syndrome that involves horrible uh, GI distress, vomiting, nausea, diarrhea, horrible agitation, severe dysphoria and pain, this is the usual treatment for folks who use drugs in the hospital, and it shouldn't be. For 50 years, the American Medical Association has said it shouldn't be, and yet our hospital policies and the culture of medicine have coalesced around this idea that if we just punish people hard enough, they're going to go back onto the straight and narrow. Wow. So this is at the policy level. I mean, there's this isn't just an individual nurse that's just got a, a stick up her ass or whatever and doesn't want to give the, the patient what's, you know, this is this was policy from top down in some places. It's it's all levels concurrently working together, sometimes unintentionally so to produce a system of cruelty and discrimination. So, yeah, the immediate care team could be informed by their past negative experiences with not only patients, but also with family members who might have had substance use disorders. We see this all the time with line staff who, because they feel as if when they take care of a person who uses drugs, that they in some ways are taking care of the, the cousin they had or the, or the sister they had, um, that they can engage in what they describe as tough love colloquially and love. withhold medications. I can't tell you the number of times when I was a resident that I saw opiate medications being withheld from patients under the pretense of sedation. When in reality, if you go and talk to the patient, they're very much awake, very much alert. 
and and very much in florid withdrawal, which again leads to against medical advice discharge, which leads to death. I would agree with that analysis, especially at the systems level. Um, I see it all the time. I am a perpetual optimist about people. So um, I like to see the best. And I tend to think that most of the people working in the hospital, they really do care about their patients. They really do want the best for their patients. I think there is a lot of miseducation and um, a lot of policies that are very misguided that can have horrific consequences, though. So I think a lot of these individual clinicians, frontline staff, they see addiction, they see the severe consequences of addiction, often affecting health, and they see that it's an addiction to a substance that they have some control over in the hospital setting. So they make the mistaken assumption that by providing that same chemical or pharmaceutical in a controlled way, that they're somehow perpetuating the addiction. Now, I do want to also take a step back and say, hey, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and actually still in some services, if someone was admitted with alcohol addiction to some, let's say, a surgical service, sometimes the services will actually just give them cans of beer to keep and maintain their dependence, right? Um, I wouldn't want, you know, just the provision of short-acting opioids to be the default for every single patient um, when we're still in this baseline where so many clinicians don't even know how to use buprenorphine, methadone, naltrexone, right? So we're in a baseline where so many clinicians don't even know how to use the stuff we know works for treatment. So I, I both want that and I want the extra option for people who are sicker than that or who have, you know, have more stronger dependence and that can treat, Yeah, at least at first. I feel like almost everybody I've ever visited in the hospital that had some sort of pain from the time when my sister had a C-section to the appendicitis. Nobody ever feels like they've, they've gotten enough pain relief. You know, I, I've never heard somebody say like, that's perfect. That's great. It's always like going to, you know, to, to, you know, find a nurse and get, you know, can we get some more? It's not working. You know, it's a struggle. I, I um, went with my ex-wife once she had her arm dislocated it was, it was hanging down to like her knee. You know I mean? It was like, it was clearly her shoulder was dislocated and it took 45 minutes to get any pain medication, you know? And she said, you know, in the old days, it, they would just, the first thing they would do would be hit her with morphine. But this process of getting the pain medication down to her was those, um, you know, it just took really long. And, and I mean, uh, so, so doctors like are, are caught between this, 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 you know, like a rock and a hard place because in, in the one hand, they're they're frequently blamed um, for the overdose crisis, you know, and over prescribing and sort of like um, being duped by pharmaceuticals uh, executives into into prescribe over prescribing uh, narcotic painkillers. But then they're also tasked with um, with solving it, <laughs> you know, at the same time. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think that. Um, in some ways, you know, there's, there's good practitioners and there's bad on both sides. I mean, I've, I've seen even on the, on the addiction treatment side, there are, there are, you know, long time family medicine, you know, practitioners that, that just give that up, open a little like hole in the wall office, charge only cash and, and start raking it in on Suboxone, you know? Um, I guess, uh, 
where I'm getting at. I don't even know, but uh, maybe it's sort of like the regulations or policies or how, how can we make it, how can we make people more likely to retain themselves on maintenance treatment? And, and, and I hate to say this, but the few times I've seen it really try, work from like street fentanyl to Suboxone were people that went into the Philly jail system and came out because they were in a contained environment and they couldn't, they, you know, and, and that, but that doesn't last. I mean, it might last two or three months, but, but then they're right back where they were. Um, is Suboxone enough for most people today or, uh, or is it sort of being, being pushed more than it should be maybe over methadone or other options? I'll put it this way. I, I've had multiple patients ask me the same question, which is, why the hell should I enter into recovery if at the end they're just going to spit me back out onto Kensington Avenue, homeless and unemployed? I think that our biggest failing as a profession is in considering substance use disorder as an individualized phenomenon that is sort of hermetically sealed from individual to individual, that it's due to some innate structural problem in their brain or due to some moral failing on their part, and that by giving them just the right medication or by punishing them just enough that they're going to get better, that they're going to start going into a, a, a deeper recovery based only on that. But the research, 20 years of research now shows that the root of substance use disorder more often than not is trauma. Dubay, 2003, published in the Journal of Pediatrics that 78% of injection drug use can be explained by exposure to four or more adverse childhood experiences. And we have here in Philadelphia entire zip codes where nearly half of the folks in those zip codes have had those exposures. So I understand the question is about how to keep people maintaining a recovery. But if we don't understand the social construction of substance use disorder, then there's no way we're going to help people maintain recovery. What people need, what my patients need, is a house or an apartment, at least, a place to live. Because if you don't have that, if you don't have some hot food in your belly, there's no way you're going to choose to deepen your recovery. I was interviewing a, a drug user in Kensington um, about a week ago who's now staying in um, sort of, I guess it's sort of a respite. I, if I explained it to you, Ben, you'd probably know where it was. But um, he said that just having that stable place to sleep every night, he's cut his habit in half and he goes to work every day now. And, and, and it was just a function of of having the, the safety of, of knowing that he can sleep soundly at night, you know? Um, and, and yeah, house, housing is critical. It's uh, pathways to housing groups like that have managed to, um, you know, meet people where they are and not make stopping drug use the primary, like first step towards anything else. Um, I think you bring up a great point. Absolutely. I, and, and we should notice that, Pathways to Housing, the housing first provider in Philadelphia, currently serves about 500, 550 individuals. There are between six and 12,000 homeless individuals in Philadelphia. So in order to meet that need, we need to expand the budget of organizations like Pathways by a factor of 10. Um, 
I did the numbers on this actually a couple of weeks ago. And to do that would cost about $150 million a year, which isn't nothing, but it's comparable to the $130 million a year pay raise that we gave the police officers in Philadelphia this year. So the money is very much there. At this point, I have to chalk this up to a lack of political will. Yeah, I might just add, I have never seen a patient make a meaningful recovery from severe addiction while being homeless. It's possible, I'm sure, and I'm still a young doctor, but it is so, so hard when you're facing housing instability. Um, It is just, so I, I could not more fully support housing first policies like we're discussing. One thing I would add to this is there's just such a wide variability in the experience of addiction and the experience of recovery. So I want to honor the people who I see in my clinic who are stable in recovery, sometimes even from fentanyl use disorder on a standard dose of buprenorphine maintenance, let's say, Um, or maybe they need a slightly different dose um, because of the different effects of fentanyl compared to heroin. So it is absolutely possible for some people, medications alone works. And it is ridiculous to try to force some of those people to go through some of the other psychosocial treatments if medication alone is working for them. But there is another group of patients for whom they need more than the medications. And we need to be responsive to that and understand what that is. Sometimes that is housing first. Sometimes that's you know dealing with trauma, with evidence-based treatments for the trauma too. Other times, there are some patients who actually do benefit from more structure. And I think that's something we have to be honest about, that methadone clinics, although they're much maligned, um, when done in a way that's patient-centered, can provide structure that some patients do benefit from. Um, And I'm trying to kind of lift up the voice of my patients who share that with me and say, you know what? No, I don't want to get beat from your clinic. I want to go to the methadone clinic because they're going to give it to me every day and check in with me. So there's just a wide variability. And I think we need our policies and practice to reflect that. I agree 100% that that the better able we are to tailor our treatment to the individual patient without having to walk on eggshells around 15 different federal regulations, the better the patient outcomes are going to be. A recent study just released specifically on methadone treatment programs in the era of COVID-19 found that they doubled effectively the number of take-home doses that were available to the patients. And for those who don't know, take-home doses mean that you get to take the medication home with you rather than having to uh, uh, administer the medication to yourself in front of somebody at the clinic. They doubled the number of these take-home doses, loosening the restrictions on the patients, and they found no increase in bad outcomes. So yes, structure is good, but that structure needs to be absolutely complementary to the needs of the individual patient. Um, yeah, and, and when I when I came off of heroin in the, the late '90s, I went on a methadone clinic, and I quickly learned that 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 clinic was tailored to the lowest common denominator. So they didn't know how to deal with success, really. Um, and I don't know if that was a function of how they were paid. Um, it, it was there they they were incentivized to keep people there longer in groups longer. I, um, once you got to a certain point, they just didn't know what to do with you anymore. 
Um, if you had clean urines and you got the maximum number of take-homes in, in, in Pennsylvania is, is one week, um, whereas under federal guidelines, it's, it's 28 days or 30 days. Um, so an individual, I think individual clinics can modify that as they, as they see fit. And um, that is certainly, I, well, I agree with Ashish, there, there are certain people that would benefit from the structure. Um, like it, there's people that walk off because they can't work. You know, they can't, they can't go to their job because the clinic opens at seven and they got to be there at six. Um, but it's not uh, patient centered, right? I think that's the simplest right. way of putting it. It's program centered a lot of the time. And those, we need to do a better job. Um, you know, one of the things I do my best to fight is the stigma around some of these medications. Um, it's hard to fight the stigma when so many clinics are so poorly run. I had, I had the benefit of working in a clinic that I thought was really, really well run um, in Baltimore. Um, I, I'm only going to say good things about it. IBR Reach. It's fantastic. Um, and I learned a lot from working there. So I think it can be done well. It's just. And at the end of the day, it really just, it's, it's about how we as providers and by extension, how we as the people who build and run treatment programs want to orient ourselves with regard to our patients. Like we can either see ourselves as cops who are devoted to policing what constitutes sickness and health, recovery and relapse, adherence and non-adherence, and then establishing negative reinforcement systems to punish our patients into becoming healthier. We can do that. We do do that. Or we can see ourselves as advisors, ideally trusted ones, where our task really is to help patients better understand their bodies and their options, and then walk with them through the process of choosing. I teach a lot from Plato's Laws, book four, because this document, despite being thousands of years old, really gets to the quick. Here's this dialogue. Person one asks, you are aware that there are two different classes of doctors, person two says, to be sure. And person one then says, and did you ever observe that there are two classes of patients in the States, slaves and free men? And that the slave doctors run about and cure the slaves or wait on them in the dispensaries. Practitioners of this sort never talk to the patients individually or let them talk about their own individual complaints. The slave doctor prescribes what mere experience suggests as if he had exact knowledge. And when he has given his orders like a tyrant, he rushes off with equal assurance to some other servant who is ill. And so he relieves the master of the house of the care of his invalid slaves. But the other doctor, who is a free man, attends and practices upon free men. And he carries his inquiries far back and goes into the nature of the disorder. He enters into discourse with the patient and with his friends and is at once getting information from the sick man and also instructing him as far as he is able. And he will not prescribe for him until he has first convinced him. At last, when he has brought the patient more and more under his persuasion and set him on the road to health, then he attempts to effect a cure. Now, which is the better way of proceeding in a physician? Is he the better who accomplishes his ends in a double way, or he works in one way, and that the ruder and the inferior? Uh, well, um do do doctors have a tendency to infantilize patients that have addiction treat that have addiction issues? <laughs> it's a loaded question, I think. 
Yes, I think so. Um, it gets at what is a actually, I think, very deep question um, about um, choice and um, autonomy. Um, I think many physicians have, and clinicians in general, um, believe that when someone has addiction, they um, sometimes lack the ability to make kind of free choices um, or that they should lack that. Um, it kind of colors their opinion of that whole person. So um, yeah, I think there, there's that element of infantilizing because of that, but there's also, I think, a fundamental fear of being manipulated. Um, and I think that actually gets at um, some of the ego that is behind it sometimes, you know, when we're the clinicians on our side, we think, I think a lot of people are really afraid that, oh my gosh, is this patient who's coming to me and asking me for this, is, is she trying to take advantage of me? Is she trying to manipulate a situation to get something that, that she wants? That's actually fueling um, the, the problem, right? Um, that is something we need to move away from. Um, I think we need to move away from that idea by actually building that rapport and trying to make it a safe enough space where patients can say, hey, actually, yeah, I brought some dope with me because I knew I was going to get sick. I knew they weren't going to treat me, right? It takes a lot to get to that point, but I think you have enough conversations, you listen to patients and you can build that trust over time um, so that they trust you and they're open with you and then you're not infantilizing, you're not afraid of them manipulating you. It can be a little bit more of a straightforward convo. When I teach on this subject, I, I talk a lot about how many patients do you have to accuse of lying to you in order to find the one patient who is lying to you? And, you know, if that number is you have to accuse 10 patients before you find the one person who's got malicious intent on you, that's, that's going to have a really negative impact on all of your relationships with your patients. And, you know, beyond that, I think that providers need to start understanding why patients don't feel safe enough to disclose. Like Ashish is saying, if you don't, if you don't have the patient's trust, you're not going to have the patient's truth. So the different ways that we can help establish those bonds of confidence with the patient, the more open we can be as programs and the less domineering and, and tyrannical we can be about access to, you know, treatments that might not be the number one preferred gold standard treatment, but are working right there in that moment for the patient, the more we're able to, to accommodate that, the more patients are going to trust us. And my hope is that through those bonds of trust, the less infantilized patients will feel with us. And to some extent, there's a fear, I think, that doctors have, rightly so, um, that something's going to go wrong, a patient's going to abuse their, their prescription, or it's going to get diverted, and the DEA is going to come knocking on their door. Um, uh, at least that's what, you know, that's what the narrative is. I mean, do you, have you seen this happen in, in, to your colleagues? I mean, does this happen? Do, 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 do doctors literally get, you know, caught up in investigations and legal cases. I mean, uh, the DEA tells me they're going after doctors all the time. Um, and uh, you can't discount the fact that among those doctors, patients are some actual legitimate patients that, that now no longer have a doctor, you know, um, 
has that changed? Have you noticed an increase in in oversight and and sort of like scrutiny from from uh, in law enforcement or hospital systems? It's a really good question. I have not been practicing long enough to be able to give a good answer on the change. I can say um, I do know of examples where the DEA or the state uh, board of physicians does get involved. Um, and those examples that I'm thinking about have been um, pretty uh, egregious shifts uh, in practice from what I would think of as the norm. Um, and I think there is, you know, some of those patients um, maybe needed the treatment that they were getting, um, and some maybe were not receiving um, the best care and maybe could have been getting better care had they not been receiving the medications they were there. So it's tricky, but it does happen. Yeah. I, so I don't know anybody personally who's lost their license or their practice. Um, but in my practice, I, it is not uncommon to get a large wave of patients in the wake of the abrupt closure of a medical practice or an addiction treatment program. Um, I would say that, you know, certainly these events are rare, but there are significant ways in which our practice is constrained, not just by law or insurance policy, like Ashish mentioned, the Harrison Act, the subsequent Supreme Court case, Webb versus the United States, and then the Controlled Substance Act and the, and the federal code. Um, you know, those laws say we can't prescribe safe supply except under some very specific conditions. Uh, and, you know, the government is or at least has been pretty rabid about that. Former U.S. Attorney William McSwain and the Justice Department under Trump were very vocal about using their power to ruin lives of doctors who stepped over the line. But as a result, it's not just that we've started obeying the law as if we ever weren't. Providers, health systems, and insurance companies, as a result of those threats, then go on to practice medicine on eggshells. Perhaps the best example of this, compulsory urine drug screenings as a uh, condition of participation in in a uh, uh, substance use treatment program. So if you look at the guidance from the American Society of Addiction Medicine, if you look at the guidance from uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, nowhere in their guidance does it say that we must, with any specified frequency, deploy urine drug screens for folks who are uh, getting, for instance, buprenorphine for the treatment of opiate use disorder. And yet, if you surveyed 100 treatment programs here in Philadelphia, you would find that most of them, every time the patient comes in, ask for a urine sample. Yeah, I often wondered if they were just, uh, you know, just taking it and dropping it in a bucket somewhere just to say they took it or if they were charging you know the insurance company out the at the yes where you know just doing it for that reason because i noticed that as well and 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 nowhere does it say that marijuana should be included in testing i, I believe even in methadone clinics and yet there's still people that are stuck on like you know intense about patient for smoking weed you know um and and uh and that gets into the the whole idea of cross addiction which i've talked to to other um both doctors and 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 uh, academics about in terms of whether it even exists and and generally it, it's now i think agreed upon that 
there's really no such thing as an addictive personality um that that certain substances uh for whatever reason are are you know people can become compulsive about and and it can ruin their lives whereas others you know they may be able to smoke weed or drink a beer and not do cocaine um and you know so i i think that this idea that somebody has to be completely and completely and utterly like clean and sober of everything you know i, I had to explain to uh counselors in the past in, in my recovery that well i'm an italian and we drink wine with dinner it's considered part of our food you know <laughs> um so like yeah i've had a drink in the past the week you know but um it's 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 uh it's maddening the level of misunderstanding that many doctors have and self-censuring um based on guidelines particularly around co-prescribing of benzodiazepines and suboxone which nowhere does does it say that that is contraindicated but uh they it's believed to be by many by many practitioners yeah and you know to get back to you and um ben were discussing with the dea and fear of litigation. One of the issues is that there is so much more we could be doing as a medical system, even within existing regulations. There's so much, we could just be doing such a better job, right? If you have someone who is on chronic opioids prescribed, don't abruptly cut them off. If you have someone who has a chronic opioid prescription and urine comes up positive for an illicit substance, that is not the time to, quote, fire them, right? Someone is coming to you with an addiction, offer evidence-based treatment, learn how to actually prescribe the medications, actually refer to the evidence-based psychotherapy if necessary, you know, actually learn how to do what's possible. And just such a huge gap between what we're doing and what's possible under existing regulation. And then, yes, I'm also think in huge support of pushing that forward because the limitations in this country are strange and based on really old puritanical values that are not evidence-based by and large, I think. If you take an international perspective to it, um, it it's just striking um, what we're, we're blocked from doing here in the U.S. So yeah, both we need to take up the level of what we're providing to match what's allowed. And yes, that we also need to expand that. Truly. And, it, you know, it, I, I, I try to say this as often as I can. Between 2002 and 2012, about 20,000 people every year died of fatal opioid overdose. So that's, that's prior to the CDC's guidance on can't prescribe opiates for chronic non-cancer pain. So during this era when, you know, presumably at least according to many news outlets, doctors were just throwing opiates at patients, 20,000 people a year died of overdose. In the last 12 months, 93,000 people have died of fatal opioid overdose. That alone is a damning indictment of prohibitionist policy as used as a guiding principle for medical practice. And like, this is not our first rodeo as a country. We saw this happen a hundred years ago with prohibition. We saw people stop drinking wine and beer, move to hard liquor. We saw that trafficking organization incentive to compress, condense, increase purity, 
decrease overall volume. And out of that, you got a much more dangerous product. And that's what we have here with illicitly manufactured fentanyl. We have a poisoned drug supply. We have a government that's spending $50 billion a year to interdict that supply and make it even less reliable. And we've got providers such as myself and Ashish and the many nurse practitioners and physicians assistants who are also working on the front lines with us just trying to play catch up here. You know, Biden will announce $100 million for improved treatment access. Meanwhile, chugging along at $50 billion a year is our war on drugs. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing in this country, and that needs to stop. How many doctors think like you, Ben? <laughs> um, do you think there's a, a crop of, of younger harm reduction-focused doctors that are that are replacing some of the I, I think you were right, by the way, about the 70s. There was there was a real push for methadone in the beginning of the, the, the 70s. And, um, you know, there was the like, medication assisted treatment was seen as, a, as this thing that was uh, beneficial. And then there was sort of a backlash against that and replacing one addiction for another kind of thing. Um, now we've seen, obviously, a, a resurgence of, of, of that medication assisted treatment push with the with suboxone people feel like oh it's not we're not letting them feel too good so it must it must be okay because that's really what it's all about is like making sure people aren't sick but don't feel good <laughs> god forbid um but uh, ha, ha, uh are most of your colleagues in line and this goes to both of you with, with your thinking on this or do you or do you fight an uphill battle um against um you know an, an archaic system yeah so Harm reduction is now being routinely taught within medical schools. Students at the bare minimum are learning about the effectiveness of syringe service programs and other harm reduction strategies. So that's good, but harm reduction itself is not a monolithic concept. And we should pay close attention to the kind of harm reduction that's wending its way through the profession. So first kind of harm reduction, it's ageless. This is a thing that has its roots in the social bonds of care and mutual aid that form within communities of people who use drugs. This is the kind of harm reduction that values autonomy above all else, meets people where they are, and walks with them wherever they choose to go without judgment. This is the harm reduction that's being practiced by the Drug User Liberation Front up in British Columbia with its implementation of compassion clubs and safe supply. It's being practiced by Vocal New York in their partnership with the New York Tenants Union against homelessness. And it's being practiced here in Philadelphia by Project Safe and the Red Umbrella Alliance in their administration of their sex worker relief fund. There's a second kind of harm reduction, though. It's a bureaucratic intervention that gained popularities in the 80s and 90s, and it was basically designed to get poor people to cost less. (laughs) This is the harm reduction of the cost-benefit analysis that, at its best, uses the resources and organizations of the state to support the work of folks who are engaged in this deeper form of harm reduction that I just mentioned. But at its worst, it's the harm reduction of Mike Pence's syringe exchange, which is a bargain between the state's actuaries who know that they can't afford a spiraling epidemic of HIV and overdose and a polity that's too concerned with respectability to care. In contrast to this first kind of harm reduction, This form is is hierarchical 
and respects autonomy only insofar as it can generate cost savings for the municipalities. So based on our historically close relationship between medicine and between the state, if you're going to consider me to be an outlier at all, I think it's specifically as it relates to this particular kind of harm reduction that I center in my clinical academic and advocacy work. I try to practice a harm reduction that's critical of medicine's relation to the state and resolutely adherent to the principles of autonomy and justice for my patient. I try to be the doctor of the free men because that's who I treat. You, you summed that up really great. Um, Ashish, uh, you're, you're a young doctor entering the system. Do you find, um, do you find that you sort of collide with old thinking um, when you were in Baltimore was what you were doing um, any different than what had been being done before? What's funny is that I think everyone who is on the front lines helping care for individuals sees that what we were doing wasn't working. Um, so I was actually surprised by how receptive a lot of people were to kind of newer ways of looking at things. I don't act like I invented those, right? I learned a lot of these from other people who've been doing the work, from harm reduction advocates. I, I can't even name the number of them who have taught me either directly or from podcasts like this one. Um, so, you know, part of what I think of my mission of is helping to like soak up all of that and help try to move the needle a little bit person by person in the hospital. So I think the things that convince people to change one is seeing that what they were doing isn't working which is obvious when you have patients leaving the hospital using in the hospital delaying presenting the hospital the second thing besides seeing that what they're doing wasn't working the second thing that helps is seeing that there's another option that can work so i think actually showing what it looks like to have individuals who are in recovery who've made the transition from chaotic use to either less chaotic use or to abstinence so actually like having peer recovery specialists, peers who actually gone through that process to help educate some of the clinicians. Um, and then, then the last thing is actually modeling and like showing what those relationships can look like when you actually build that rapport with hospitalized patients. Um, so yeah, it's possible to make the shift. And I think younger generation is really, really interested in this work. Um, I think it aligns with the general philosophy of trying to um, trying to promote autonomy of patients and of trying to do everything we can uh, for these individuals when we, stigma and uh, persecution and prosecution really isn't working. Yeah, I, I, I believe it was probably 2017 or 2018 that I stopped using the term opioid crisis and started saying overdose crisis because I don't really have a problem with you using opioids if that's what you use. Uh, I don't want you to die from it. And and to me, that's that's what true like a true harm reduction based you know approach is 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 um, making sure that whatever choice somebody makes, um, they can do it in in a way that is the the least harmful to them. And and that brings me, I guess, to the like we can close with this. Um, that Philadelphia was the locus of of a push for supervised injection and supervised consumption. Um, that case uh, was recently um, denied certiorari by the Supreme Court, so it's it won't be heard there. Uh, but it, it is back in district court, I believe. Um, it's probably a long shot that that it's going to happen that way here. But but I believe over the past maybe two years, as the fight was going on, you know, I personally started realizing that 
supervised consumption wasn't enough because we had an introduction of uh, synthetic cannabinoids into our, our heroin supply here. Uh, xylazine has, has really hit hard. Um, and, you know, th- that's where safe supply comes in. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it, it, you can give somebody a safe place to use, but if they're still going to get these black abscesses on their arms and legs from what they're using, or, you know, we're only doing so much. And, is it, is it even, is it just a pipe dream to, to think that, that we could ever have something like that in, in the U.S.? I mean, it, it, you, you said it best that we're based, you know, on this puritanical, um, you know, sort of ancestry of our country and the, the founding of our nation that, that still looks at, you know, that still looks at a person as an individual that can do anything. You can be president if you want to. You can stop drugs if you want to. Just stop, you know. Um can we ever break through that mentality? It's going to take a lot. <laughs> it's going to take a huge shift. Um, there are so many structural elements um, that are between where we are now and that vision. Um, I think of it as part of my work to try to help push us towards that. Um, so again, I, I always come back to thinking about each, you know, who, who are the, who are the individuals we're thinking about? Um, and I think when we're talking about safe supply, which I am in general in favor of, I'm thinking about the individuals who already have drug use, who already have addiction, and who are faced with an unsafe supply, exactly like you said. Those are the people I wish I could say, yes, I w- here is access to a known quantity of a known pharmaceutical-grade substance. You already have either frequent drug use or addiction. That's a given. I want to make sure it's safer, Right. But there's the other side, which I think is what a lot of policies built around, which is the what about the kids side? It's, you know, what about these individuals who don't have exposure or haven't started use? Um, There is a a fear that, you know, safe supply will end up increasing the amount of drug use that's out there, especially if safe supply is done in a way that's corporatized. So, I'm not trying to be a book of both sides. This I am absolutely in favor of safe supply for the individuals who already have drug use and addiction. I think we need that as an option, but um, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to happen anytime soon. What, what do you think, Ben? So, uh, you know, I, I agree with Ashish that there needs to be sort of a double articulation in our solutions that the answer to the, what about the kids question is we know what's happening to the kids. We know that there are zip codes in Philadelphia where half of the folks get exposed to four or more adverse childhood experiences, which increases their likelihood of developing substance use disorder seven to tenfold, which explains 78% of injection drug use. If you want to stop substance use disorder in Philadelphia, you stop the trauma. And I really do believe that through greater advocacy efforts, and I'm talking like act up times 10. I'm talking thousands of people in the streets kind of actions. We can get that political will. Our leaders have become accustomed to not being accountable to folks who they consider to be marginalized, to folks who they consider to not be worth the voter outreach. And that's what we see on Philadelphia City Council, an organization that, again, could end homelessness this year, but chooses not to every time they meet. So yeah, what about the kids? 
We know what to do about the kids. The question is the second part of the double articulation, which is what do we do with the 50 to 75,000 folks in the city who have opiate use disorder? And yeah, to the very beginning of our conversation today, we need to tailor that answer to the individual person. Because there are going to be folks where 16 milligrams of buprenorphine, naloxone, sublingual films daily is going to do it. That's why we walked away from medication-assisted treatment as a moniker and towards medications for opiate use disorder, because sometimes the medication is the treatment. There's not nearly enough prescription of buprenorphine in the city to meet the demand. I would argue that Xing the X waiver, that making buprenorphine more available from providers, while an admirable goal, is not even within an order of magnitude of being able to address the true need. So part of the solution, I believe, needs to be a liberalization of availability of buprenorphine from prescription only to behind the counter. We need to make it available in pharmacies for anybody who wants it, and it needs to be cheaper than a bag of heroin. Because that's the other problem. Dope on the right corner is five bucks a bag. And an eight milligram suboxone film is $10. So we need to change the economics of that situation. We need to help people heal from their trauma. We need to give people the material resources and the space necessary to do that healing work. And we need to recognize that our ability to heal trauma is imperfect, that the best treatments available for PTSD have a remission rate around 40 to 60%. So there are going to be folks who fall out at the ass end of that algorithm, no better than the way that they started. And for those folks, there needs to be safe supply. Now, I think there's a really interesting conversation about how that safe supply needs to happen. There are arguments in the United States for a medicalized version. They call it heroin or opiate-assisted therapy. But my attention right now is on Vancouver, where the Drug User Liberation Front, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, and the Vancouver City Council are getting together to authorize the implementation of compassion clubs and to do real grassroots safe supply by, of, and for the community of people who use drugs. Because at the end of the day, there aren't enough doctors to take care of this problem. We need to think about this with a wider lens. And as doctors, I know, like, you know, it's when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I want to prescribe safe supply for my patients, but I'm one guy. I can see maybe 20, 25 patients in a day. And there's 75,000 folks who need help here in Philadelphia. So that's the answer is that we need to stop the trauma. We need to provide the treatment and we need to recognize the limits of our ability to treat and then give something to those folks, some direction on where to go. And, and that's an important point to, to, to make is that especially, you know, I guess all three of us, but I know you and I, Ben, we see it. We, we see a fragmentation of the drug user population that is transient and homeless and kind of the lowest of the low. Um, we, and I have to remind myself that there's 
many other people out there that 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 are working and job that you, we don't see you know that aren't in kensington like on the corner you know in and it's just a fraction of the people that are in, in possibly in need of help and others that may not need help they just need help from the poison that's being put into their into their their the, the, the drug they think they're buying you know um uh so I guess if, if you have anything to add, Ashish, or either of you want to say anything? I yeah. just want to say this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be on the show. I've learned a ton from all your interviews and all the work uh, you do, Chris, with your colleagues. And um, Ben, great to see you and great to talk. And Ben, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. It was great to catch up. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Troy Farah. Christopher Moraff and Zachary Siegel. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. You can get some merch like stickers and more perks that are coming soon. A little goes a long way, guys, so thanks for helping us out. We're ad-free and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by just spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast, advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Glass Boy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad, drug-using producer. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook... I guess we have an Instagram now, too. Those are the best ways to try and contact us if you have a suggestion, complaint, or just want to tell us nice things. SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. That's about everything. Have a good week, guys.